We're going to be looking at John chapter, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter nine today, beginning with verse 15. If you like to, or verse 18, maybe I should walk back up again. <laughs> Luke 9:18. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, "Who do the crowds say that I am?" They replied, "Some say John the Baptist. Well, others say Elijah." And still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? The little Greek word day, which means must, occurs 18 times in the Gospel of Luke. Day is the third person singular form of the verb deo, which means I bind. There are certain musts to which the world and to which we are bound. Luke uses the word day more and far more than any other biblical writer. I think because he wanted to communicate to his readers that this is a God-purposed world in which we can live a God-purposed life. Jesus lived that God-purposed life. That's, That's clear from the many musts that he recognized I must be in my father's house. I must proclaim the good news. Everything written about me must be fulfilled. Jesus recognized himself bound by God-ordained realities in his life. But there's a paradox here. The person who, like Jesus, lives a God-purposed life in a God-purposed world, who's bound to God's will, turns out to be the freest person of all. We think it's the person who does whatever he feels like doing, whenever he feels like doing it, that's free. But that simply isn't the case. That person always ends up enslaved to his circumstances, to his feelings, to his desires. But the person who accepts and lives within the musts that God has placed on him or her is set free. A train that stays on the track for which it is made is free to go to far-flung places. The train that refuses to stay on the track but rather goes its own way doesn't go very far. Its freedom is short-lived. It doesn't go very far, and in getting there, it usually causes lots of harm to itself and to other people. And so it is with us. We are most free when we're connected to the track of God's musts for our lives because they're designed for us with, with who we are as humans and who we are as unique individuals, it's divine, it's designed with us in mind. God's musts fit us in a way that our desires 
as capricious as they are, do not and cannot. As Christ followers, we share many of the same musts since we share Christ's commands. We must deny ourselves. We must be on guard against all kinds of greed. We must love God and love our neighbor. We must forgive those who sin against us. Those are a few that we all share. They form the major tracks that God has laid down in our lives. But then there are tracks that are unique to us as individuals. For example, I think it was one of God's musts for me to come here 25 years ago to serve at Lockwood Church. Some musts for individuals are long-term. Some are very short-term. Give money to this person. Help that old man put his groceries into his car. Give your best friend a call. They're short in duration, but not in importance. They're still musts. Aligning our lives with these musts frees us to become the persons that we were always meant to be. And that's why these are liberating to us. When our musts, when the musts God has placed on our life, become our nature, we're easy in ourselves, we're real with others, we're free. But when we sidestep our musts in order to have our own way, we paradoxically lose our freedom, like the train that sidesteps the track. Jesus was well aware of the musts in his life. Some of them were short-term, temporarily required, quickly fulfilled. He must go to Zacchaeus' house today. He must do the work of... Uh, he must go through Samaria. Some of them were long-term. He must do the work of him who sent him. But in regard to Jesus, one must towers above all the others. One is repeated over and over more than any of the others. He must go to Jerusalem and there suffer and die. As we've been studying the Gospel of Luke... <clears throat> We spent a lot of time talking about the extent of salvation, since Luke takes a lot of time describing it. Salvation reaches around the world to people of different ethnic and religious backgrounds, to people of different races, to the least, to the last, to the lost. Luke emphasizes the reach of salvation more than any of the other gospel writers. But today we turn from the millions who receive salvation to the one who brought it from the recipients of salvation to its provider. Jesus provided salvation by his obedience to a must that was distinctly his. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law and must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That's verse 22. Now go back to verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? Now, why ask that question? Was Jesus worried that his popularity might be waning? Was he feeling like an actor whose star status is slipping and knows that if he doesn't do something about it quickly, he's going to end up on one of those contest shows with the C-list celebrities and has-beens? I think Jesus' motive was altogether different. His question about the crowd's estimation of him, I think, was just a prelude to asking the disciples what they thought. You see, his identity had been the elephant in the room for many months, and the time had come for them to talk about it. It's obvious that the disciples have been keeping their finger on the pulse of the crowd. They knew what everyone was saying. They were watching the polls. They were strategizing their next move. The crowds were saying that Jesus was John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the old prophets risen for a new age. Now, it's hard to understand what they meant by that. 
They seem to think that the spirit of some powerhouse saint of the past might come from the grave and embody a living person. But I think Jesus' real interest was in what his disciples were thinking. Who do you think that I am? He asks. And in Greek, the structure of the sentence strongly emphasizes the word you. But you, who do you think I am? I don't believe he asked the question because he didn't know how they would answer. But because he knew that they didn't know what their answer really meant. And he was about to show them. I can imagine when Jesus asked this question, the disciples looking at each other, half afraid of saying what they've been thinking. And then I can see everyone's eyes turning to Peter, waiting for him to voice the answer. And he says, the Christ of God. To which Jesus responded, verse 21, very surprisingly, he strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. The Greek is very strong rebuking them. It's the normal word for rebuke. Rebuking them. He ordered them not to tell anyone. Well, why bring it up if he was just going to tell them not to bring it up? The answer, I think, is that they probably had already brought it up or were on the verge of doing so. See, they had seen the things the crowds had seen but hadn't really understood. And they had seen the things the crowds had not seen things that had convinced them that Jesus was Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And they wanted everybody else to know that, too. But Jesus didn't want other people to know that. And why? Because people had wildly mistaken ideas about what Messiah would do. If the crowds were to decide that Jesus was Messiah, they would want to raise an army, start a war, drive out the Roman oppressors. Jesus knew these ideas about Messiah were imprinted on the national psyche, and even his disciples were expecting that sequence of events when Messiah was revealed. We know that because even after Jesus died and rose again, the apostles were still expecting him to get down to the real business of restoring the kingdom to Israel. Those are their words from Acts chapter 1, verse 6. But that was not what God sent Jesus to do, at least not yet. In the original language, There is no break between verses 21 and 22. Those two verses comprise one sentence. It reads something like, rebuking them, he ordered them not to tell this to anyone, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and on the third day rise. In other words, don't tell this to anyone because the idea they'll derive from it will be just about the opposite of the truth. The truth is the Son of Man is facing some very hard things. Now, in this verse, we have the third of the, those 18 uses of the word must in the gospel. And it's the first time that it's been used of Jesus' impending suffering and death. But it won't be the last. That word is used in reference to the passion of Christ again in chapter 13, verse 33, 17, 25, 22, 37, 24, 7, 30, 26, and 44. Six more times. Suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection was the will of God. It was a must-do for Jesus. Now, it's interesting that Jesus brings this up in a moment of high spirits and triumph. The disciples have just said, everybody thinks you're someone incredibly special. But we know you're even more than they realize. We know that you're God's Messiah. It's at that moment, Jesus turns to them and says for the first time, I'm going to suffer 
and be rejected and die. Get this. This is what's going to happen. Later in the same chapter, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, everybody's talking about it. And at that moment, he takes his disciples and says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. It was when the disciples were flushed with excitement over the triumphal entry, at a time when even foreigners were wanting interviews with Jesus, that he took them and said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Mark tells us about a time when they were on their way up to Jerusalem. Everyone was in a high state of excitement with Jesus leading the way. The disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And at that moment, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Salvation was not going to come about through a regime change or through military action or political means. Neither was it going to come through slow growth and maturation. It was going to come through a series of events that no one had anticipated. The suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection of God's Messiah. This was a must. This was plan A. And there was no plan B. God's work in the world depended on it. The cross was not an unfortunate accident or a terrible mistake. It was unfathomably the will of God. Luke takes this up several more times in this book. After the resurrection, the angels told some of the disciples, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Jesus asked the Emmaus roadwalkers, did not the Christ have to, and that again is our little word, day, suffer these things and then enter his glory? He told his disciples when he gathered them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. In the companion volume to the Gospel of Luke that we know as the Acts of the Apostles, the same writer takes up that theme again. He records part of Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost when he told his hearers that Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead. See, here's what we need to understand. If you take away the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross, if you clean up the gospel so that there's no ugliness and pain, make it G-rated for children and for all the people who just want to tidy up spiritually, then you have no gospel. The gospel tells the terrible news that God sent his son into the world and we hated him and killed him. The gospel tells the wonderful news that God intervened and raised him from the dead. And instead of hating us because of what we did and would do again, God forgives us because of what Jesus did. If we stop there, which is precisely the spot we like to stop, we'll miss something essential to this gospel and essential to our lives. This must-do event of the cosmic calendar, the suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection of Jesus, doesn't make sense outside of the life of discipleship. 
For Luke, the saving action of Christ is not and cannot be understood in the context of a theory of the atonement, no matter how good and right that theory might be. It can only be understood in the context of a life of discipleship, of following Jesus. Some people seem to think that following Jesus is all about getting the right answers on some kind of Christian doctrine test. Now, I am not going to belittle getting right answers. Wrong answers hurt us. They diminish God's glory and they make it more difficult for us to have the beautiful lives God intends us for, for us to have. But, while the substitution theory of the atonement may help us understand the must of the cross and the goodness of God, the substitution theory of the atonement will never be a substitute for following Jesus. There's no substitute for true, wholehearted faith in Jesus Christ and the obedience that always comes from faith, to paraphrase the Apostle Paul. I don't know how to put this any more strongly. You will never understand what the Christian life is all about from the outside. You cannot live a life that is the antithesis of his, a life that's self-oriented and self-protective, a life that pays no heed to the presence of God or the intent of his will, and ever understand Christianity. As long as theology remains an abstract academic subject, that is, when it fails to become a practical issue for our lives, it will always tend towards heresy. Now notice the connection, and it's a very close one, between the passion of Christ and the discipleship of his people. Look at verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Your life as his follower is inextricable from his life as your leader. If you want to follow Jesus, this is where it leads. Now, some other Lord may lead you to a life of ease and prestige. Jesus will lead you to a cross. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, and he would know, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Ours is a cross-shaped life. Unfortunately, many of us are like the person trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Our life doesn't work until it's cross-shaped. We will never understand his cross until we're willing to take up our own. The salvation that was provided by Jesus on the cross is practiced by people who live a cross-bearing life. If you say, that's not the kind of salvation I want, I can only reply, there isn't another kind. <clears throat> it need hardly be said that a life of self-denial and cross-carrying is repugnant to us. That is not the American dream. But then the American dream is not God's dream for you. 
Nor was the Israel dream when Jesus first spoke these words to a group of people who are a lot like us. Now, one might think that if this is the way Jesus promotes his cause, he really needs to hire a publicity agent. Self-denial, carrying a cross, there's probably not going to be a long line of people waiting to sign up. But Jesus never engaged in false advertising. He pulled no punches. He has always wanted the people who sign up with him to know what they're getting into. And yet I wonder if we do. Consider self-denial. We think of it in terms of denying ourselves some particular thing that we desire, like a bowl of ice cream. I'm practicing self-denial because I'm not going to eat that ice cream tonight. Or a day off work. And you know what? Self-denial will include things like that. But it means more than that. Self-denial means denying self the final say over your, your life. That belongs to God alone. Self-denial means denying your old identity, any identity that takes precedence over your identity as Jesus' person. Maybe that old identity was the guy with all the answers. It must be denied. Maybe it was the political activist. It must be denied. Maybe it was the artist, the businessman, the religious leader. They all have to go. If Christ follower is not your identity, then something's wrong. Now, of course, a Christ follower may be an artist or a political activist or a business leader or even a religious leader. But those things are not his identity anymore. His identity is Christ's man. Her identity is Christ's woman. If you follow Jesus in the way of self-denial, even denying your old identity, some of the people with whom you have been close may turn away from you. Now, Jesus clearly and repeatedly warned that this would happen. Friends, colleagues, even family members may reject your new identity insist on relating to you solely in terms of your old one. The hard reality is that you might lose those people. And in losing them, experience suffering and rejection, the very things that Jesus himself endured. He wasn't mouthing empty words when he warned us that we would have to take up a cross. So why on earth would anyone want to do that? Because though it may not seem this way from the outside. The way of Jesus is the way of joy. The way of the cross is the way of fulfillment. Your old identity is what stands in the way of discovering or of becoming who you really are. It's that old self that demands its way, that clamors to be saved, that's stifling the true self God made you to be until you deny it, deny it a place, deny it a vote, deny that's who you really are you'll miss out on the joy and beauty of the life that God has planned for you. It took many years for the great British journalist, one of my heroes, Malcolm Muggeridge, to discover that this was true. Later in life, he wrote, I can say that I never knew what joy was like until I gave up pursuing happiness or cared to live until I chose to die. And then he added, for these two, dis- two discoveries, I'm beholden to Jesus. In 1955, at the zenith 
of social religion in America. The president who got baptized at a time when America was its most religious. Parker Brothers came out with a game called Going to Jerusalem. Unlike its famous game Monopoly, which had a top hat and iron and a little scotch terrier for game pieces, Going to Jerusalem had uh, players, they got this little plastic man with a robe and a beard and some sandals and a staff. They got a little disciple in different colors. Players took turns by rolling the dice and then looking up answers to a question on a card in the Revised Standard Version New Testament that came with the game. All the disciples started in Bethlehem, and they traveled through the Mount of Olives, Bethsaida, Capernaum, the Stormy Sea, Nazareth, Bethany. And if you were lucky, if the dice rolled well for you and you got the answers, you would be the first to make the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But that's where it all ended. There were no angry Pharisees or conniving chief priests or godless Roman governors. You never got to Golgotha. You went fishing with Jesus, but you didn't have to carry a cross with him. For so many people, Christianity, and this especially happens when young people reach the age where they're just coming into their own. For so many people, Christianity fails to ring true because they're playing it like a game where you only need to get the right answers to make the triumphal entry into heaven when you die. In this view, salvation is at the end of the game. Jesus thought of it as the beginning. In this view, what's being saved is a room in our Father's house or a mansion in glory. But in Jesus' view, what's being saved is you, your very soul. Look at the question he asks in verse 25. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? The self that is forfeited is the self one would become if only he or she would follow Jesus in faith. Gaining the whole world, think of it, all the things you ever wanted, the security you need, the excitement you long for, money, respect, pleasure. But if you lose yourself, None of it means a thing. Andrew Carnegie was one of the richest men who ever lived. He sat one day in an elegant restaurant in a large city, I think it was New York, a place where I would not have been permitted entrance. And while he was waiting for his gourmet meal to be served, he looked out a window and saw a workman sitting on a curb eating a sandwich with obvious relish. He said to his companion, I'd give a million dollars to have that man's appetite. And he meant it. All the gourmet food in the world meant nothing to him without an appetite. He had gained the whole menu, but in doing so, he had lost his desire for food. You might gain the whole world, but lose yourself. The self that God longs for you to be, that you long for you to be, even when you don't know it. And if you do, the whole world will mean absolutely nothing to you. Even a place in heaven will mean nothing to you. I, I want us to understand that heaven remains a, a very unreal place to us as long as we remain unreal 
because we're not becoming who God always intended us to be. Heaven means nothing to you if you lose yourself. The salvation of your soul, of you, means everything. And the way to that salvation is through the cross of Jesus Christ and through faith in the one who bore it. There is no other way. Now let's pray. God, we have this, we've divided up the cross of Jesus and set it over here and made it a historic event, which it was, made it the means of our salvation, which it is, and then had nothing else to do with it. Forgive us for that. I pray that our lives and his life might be so united that we share his cross and his resurrection, his sufferings and his joys, that our life and your life become inextricably bound together. Please give us real insight into this and the grace to act on it for Jesus' sake. Amen.